This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. After a year of supply chain shortages and pressures on agriculture, many have come to question the future of our globalized food network. It's why conversations like this one, where we dive deep into the history and future of agriculture, are so critical. Preservation isn't just about buildings. It can also help us understand the food we eat and the future of that which sustains us. The topic of this week's PreserveCast as we dive into the world of heritage wheat with Klaus Krop. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're excited to be speaking with uh, another friend far across the pond coming to us from Germany, um, Klaus Krop, who is, in, in his official role, is the manager of the Lorischem Laboratory for Experimental Archaeology. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, the work that he's doing on the Year on the Field project, which is a global effort. And we'll be talking all about that uh, and looking at the history of wheat and uh, what can be done uh, with that crop um, and what we can learn from a global effort. Um, but before we dive into that, Klaus, um, we love to get to know people and know their background a little bit. So tell us about where you grew up and how you ended up in this line of work. What what inspired you to do the kind of work that you do today? Yeah, sure, gladly. Um, basically, I was born and raised in the beautiful city of Heidelberg in southern Germany. Many Americans might know this city from the picturesque and romantic castle ruins, um, but um, many also might know it from... The fact that um, it used to be in the, the headquarters of the United States Army of Europe. So to some point, there were more than 20,000 um, American soldiers stationed there. This is where I grew up. And my my decision to study history and archaeology, basically, in Heidelberg can be well traced back to my youth, I guess. Um, I was about 16 when I started um, to get increasingly interested in historical events and also in family history. And it was this connection of having a major historical event and my family in between uh, and um, in these historical events uh, that made history alive to me. And this is um, when I started, well, spending a lot of my time in the, the public library reading uh, and learning about both history and archaeology. and. I also was hiking a lot in the in the forests of Heidelberg, exploring historical monuments and there. And um, yeah, this is why I studied um, this field of, of work, because I wanted to learn about our past to understand our present and even our future a little bit better. And um, when I think about the, my interest in agriculture, which well, is a component we need to think of when we think about the year in the field project. It is my family roots um, in this case. So my my grandfather had dairy farm in Wisconsin, and whenever I was in the states uh, in winter, I helped him for a couple of weeks, and I did that. Well, I guess a series of five or six years in a row. And when I was studying in Heidelberg, I also started working. Um, on a dairy farm in Germany and started keeping my own livestock. So I I was completing my bundle of interests um, yeah, maybe when I was about 20 to 25, I guess. 
And what was your first job in the field? And then we'll talk a little bit about what you professionally do today and then move to the project. But what was your what was your actual first job in the field after your education? My first job after graduation was actually at the Department of History at the University of Heidelberg. I started there um, in the management um, um, level. I was doing well teaching there too, but then switched after one year to the um, basically um, chair of medieval history. I was an assistant professor there, and uh, this is where I basically was able to well continue my passion in and teaching, academic teaching, um, and outreach, and also um, my research interests in medieval history, and especially rural medieval history. And today, you tell us a little bit about the the laboratory that you manage and, and the kind of work that's done there and what that is uh, a function of. Is it a function of a university? Or, or tell us a little bit about where you work today. The, the Laurasson Laboratory for Experimental Archaeology has a weird name. I, I admit that, but um, it is part actually of the so-called UNESCO World Heritage Site Lorsch Abbey. It's a medieval, early medieval memorial site, or a monastic site. It used to be one of the most powerful um, Carolingian, meaning early medieval um, monastic sites in whole Europe. And the big problem there is that today, after um, 1,200 years of existence, well, nothing much of, is, uh, of it is still there anymore. There are a few extraordinary um, remaining buildings, like the so-called King's Hall, the best preserved building of that era north of the Alps. Um, but when people came here in the past, they always had the problem of getting that image of a complete monastery or a monastic site in their head when they saw only these few ruins. And it was all really abstract. And uh, it was in 2008, and I was already working there um, besides my work uh, on that dairy farm uh, as a tour guide um, uh, here at the, the um, World Heritage site. And it was back then that people weren't necessarily only interested in monastic culture, but also everyday culture and the manorial system and how um, the duties of the servants had to go down um, about medieval crafts. And these were all things that necessarily weren't really possible to answer there. And this was the, the, the birth idea of that open air laboratory. And it was um, during the crisis of 2009 um, when there was an investment program started and we were actually able to build a scale one-to-one -one model of an early medieval memorial site um, consisting out of um, many different buildings, um, being the buildings um, where the, the fictional lord might have lived like, um, but also the servants, including agricultural fields, um, um, craftsmen shops, um, gardens, meadows, uh, and even livestock. And all of this based, well, on all the existing possible sources we're able to collect, um, meaning both historical sources, archaeological sources, iconographic sources, ethnographic sources. And one of my main research interests there today is um, the field of medieval 
agriculture. And we combined that with our public education program where about 20,000 people every year visit that open air laboratory to look the researchers over their shoulder and learn about their early medieval life. So here in the States, I think a lot of times we refer to this almost as like we, we call it like living history or, or an open air museum. Is that sort of to paint a picture for people who are interested in maybe even want to come travel when it when it's safe to do that again? And it seems like it's perhaps getting safer. Um, is that like the is that the closest way of describing what they would find there? Sort of a, like an open air museum experience? It is in a way. Um, I mean, that's a time period which doesn't has the same preservation level as when you think about um, colonial Williamsburg or um, other living history sites uh, in the States. Um, and what we also try to focus on mainly uh, on that site is research. Um, so we try to get open the door in the past through research and um, giving people the chance to watch these researchers over their shoulders, actually feeling that they're, well, part of that process of learning more about the past. So it's not, we also have living history elements on one side, but there's also the the, the modern, modern closed researcher um, walking on site and telling people something about the growth status of um, field crops with the weather station he's just um, uh, working with. Interesting. It's, it's, it's a fascinating sort of model. So out of this work, is that where the year in the field project grows? Is that what what inspired it? And then maybe tell us, uh, you know, kind of the background of it. And then what is the, the, the goal of this project? As with many ideas uh, and resulting projects, it's really hard to think back when it all started. But um, I think you're right. Um, through our own research work on medieval agriculture, the way we document every single aspect of what we're doing, like plowing with a reconstructed early medieval plow, um, uh, we we well tried ourselves in understanding these past ways of farming, and through my work in several associations, um, international associations like EMA, um, LFEM or EXARC, uh, I have also understood deeply the importance of um, historical knowledge and the understanding of traditional handicraft techniques that are not only interesting when we look at the past, but can only or also be of great value when we look into present day challenges in terms of sustainability and climate change. And so the, the idea was born to bring together as many museums, farmers, but also living history farms and archaeological open air museums around the world, as many as possible, to join forces and document the cultivation and processing of one particular field crop. And in this case, in the first year, we chose um, wheat. So we tried to bring people together to, well, get into conversation with each other, to learn from each other, and also to inform the public about, well, basically the appreciation of, of food. And so by this doing this, idea. yeah, and by doing it on a global scale, is there a level of information that you're hoping to gather and get that you wouldn't be able to do if it was just at your um, laboratory? Exactly. I mean, when you, when you look at, well, you have that 
same field crop on one hand, but of course, um, it's a different variety of wheat in every um, um, region. It uh, might be a modern day um, uh, wheat variety at that organic farm we have uh, on the project, but we also will have some heritage seeds um, from a really, really old variety at one living history site. Um, the interesting thing is that um, we were, we have basically the same processes uh, in place the we have to cultivate it we have to harvest it we have to process it but every single um, institution farmer site brings in its own traditional techniques its own way of doing it and also um its own way of coping with challenges which come along the way be it climate change or um, many, many other challenges we face. So um, it broadens the horizon in a way that uh, you stand there in awe and say, wow, this is a great resource to um, learn this on a global level. And are there specific sort of research questions that you're asking that uh, non-wheat growers would, would understand? I mean, is there, are you, are you curious about how it handles higher temperatures or are you like, what, what specifically are you hoping to find in the process? There is one specific, specific aspect of the project, um, which I have to mention in this, um, respect. It is the preservation of skills that is of great importance there. Um, when I think about, um, using, draft animals, for example. This is something which is of, well, rising value again when we think about organic farming, regenerative agriculture. But in many regions of the world, um, the knowledge of actually the right use of draft animals, be it horses or cattle, oxen, whatever, um, is already lost. So we have this great opportunity to create a database of knowledge um, to both preserve and even maybe train people um, in these crafts again. And when we think about what this project brings for non-wheat growers, um, uh, it is something that relates to the process of actually producing food. I mean, we're so much off um, when it comes to the understanding of how our food gets on the table um, that we have with this project and our public outreach um, the chance to tell people the story of how in different regions of the world, in different time periods, people cultivate what, what it means, actually, um, the cultivation of, of wheat, uh, how we would process it, what products we can make out of it. And with, with this process comes value value of food. This is uh, really something um, that uh, it's really important to me to teach people again that this is not something which we will think about, well, will I spend my money for, for another DVD or will I have something good to eat? Um, um, we should cherish and value our food way more than we do usually because it became so cheap. And if you understand all the process and work behind that production of the food, um, you might value it a little bit different. Yeah. And I think that you have like, or, or we collectively have like a, a moment to to capture that interest in that we all just lived through a pandemic and all across the world in different ways. And I don't know exactly what it was like in Germany, but I can speak from experience here in the United States is that 
you know, there were moments when we couldn't get all the types of food that we were very familiar with, or we would go into the grocery store and it would be cleared out and all the meat was gone or there were no eggs. I remember for a while, we personally, our family, we we found a a little sort of craft farmer who was selling eggs and we went there because that was the only place we really could get eggs. Um, And I think that we kind of realized the unsustainability of our modern farming systems and the supply chains and how, you know, we're dependent on, you know, Peruvian apples and, you know, strange sort of um, supply chain systems. Um, so I think people are very interested in this idea of how, how, how can they live a little bit closer and understand at least, even if they're not doing it, the food that they eat. Um, and I think that that's why it's, it's sort of appealing. And I'm curious if that's sort of a similar situation in Germany. Yeah, basically, um, you can say that as the pandemic is a global phenomenon. I mean, um, it's not only the 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 sense of family and uh, sticking together, helping others that um, was in different light during um, the last two years, but also um, when I even think about our family. I mean, especially when when the pandemic started in the first couple of months when we were in total lockdown, we were so pep- uh, so happy not only to have ourselves. We had Back then we had three children and now we have four and we we still had our own private farming operation and we spent so many time together out there um we're able to grow our own food and um this is the phenomenon we were watching with other families as well and um even trading stuff um, from each other um uh, was was really interesting and um yeah this is something well maybe one of the few things that can be a positive aspect of what we're all um, going through right now, that the the perspectives change and we we see the the value of more circular economy, um, where um, food is more locally or regional produced, um, where you know the person who is growing the food, which is growing the food, and um, you in selling or buying the stuff from this person, well you eventually directly see the result, maybe a smile or, or a happy farmer. And uh, this is of great value. So um, let's take a quick break here, come back and talk to us about the actual nuts and bolts of growing wheat and how even amateurs perhaps could get involved or be, at least be aware of a project like this. And we'll do that right here on Preserve Guest. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Before we took our break, we were talking with Klaus Kropp um, about his work um, both professionally and also as a part of this global effort called A Year on the Field, where um, groups and organizations and individuals and farmers all across the globe are banding together 
to grow wheat for a season and see what they can learn and then perhaps do it again and again. Um, talk to us about the process of growing wheat. Is it a, is it a super challenging crop to get into? Talk to us about what it would involve and perhaps we'll go from there as to how others who don't consider themselves professionals um, could even be engaged in this effort. I mean, farming in general is process influenced by many factors. And when I started farming, I realized for the first time how much we were still exposed to external conditions, extreme weather, um, or ultimately the, the climate change even. So when we take our own um, wheat um, cultivation area here at the Open Air Laboratory, for example, um, we had a quite mild winter this year. And... Um, we had a real lack of snow and a big challenge with young um, field crops as wheat is that if it stays unprotected in that young age during winter, um, it is also unprotected from wild birds, um, wild geese, for example, or when it's as warm as it is right now, um, also the, the pressure of wild um, weeds can be quite high. So um, to a certain extent, it can always be kind of a Russian roulette here um, until um, we finally have that delicious um, bread in our hands uh, and we uh, can um, finally say, and this is something I really learned in the past, um, that man, this bread really tastes good when you have all these different steps uh, and know that um, one hail can destroy everything basically so this is uh, something everybody growing wheat on a global scale has in common that you're um well still just human um and you can put in um, artificial fertilizer but when hail comes or a storm comes uh, that can all end quite quickly so this is another factor of valuing if you actually make it um to the the processing of what you you cultivated I think that's the the, the core of um, of the challenges um, you face when it comes to wheat or field crops in general. Um, and and how is it generally planted? Does it go in? I mean, I think a lot of like sort of amateur gardeners think of you know tomato gardening or cucumbers, and they go and and plop them in in the spring. How does it actually get planted? And is there a way for people who are sort of amateurs to get involved in this effort? I mean, actually, when it comes to um, to crops like like oat or rye or wheat, um, it's not that hard to cultivate. Basically, what you have to do is to prepare your um, ground, your soil um, on a farming scale that would be using, for example, um, a plow to turn the land and then a harrow to um, crumble it a little bit more down to get your seedbed ready. And then you can, well, use machinery, but you can also hand sow your wheat seeds uh, and harrow them in or um, use a different tool to get it in the ground and then basically you wait and watch and see it grow and you have to wait until the right time um, when the the seeds are really ready to be harvested and then again it's a matter of scale you can do this by hand but also in big machines the threshing has to be done in, in a way and the cleaning of the on the harvest, um, but then you're almost there and you can start um, baking your bed. And I mean, even if you're not a farmer and uh, don't have a big garden where you have a big plot, um, it's still worth to 
try it out. Uh, even in a flower pot, you can grow wheat. Um, if you want to experience that life cycle of that field crop and um, to see, well, you have that one seed and when you harvest it, you have 10 um, uh, that can be a value added chain. And we ha we had we were lucky enough to have the chance to um, have or well, gain experience um, in doing this kind of a project with school groups and kindergarten groups um, here in the municipality. And um, we only had a, a small plot, um, two to two meters um, uh, in size, um, which isn't really big, um, but the kids were in it from the beginning to the end because it was their little field and it was their harvest and their bread and they were proud as hell to bring their little bread piece home and tell mom that they actually um, um did that whole cultivation cycle so which is a i mean is a great great argument for everybody trying their hand at this um if people want to learn more about what you uncover in the process or somebody is listening and is like well i only have a little garden in my backyard but i want to try this out from my understanding, you have to start wheat in the fall, right? I mean, I guess it depends on the type of wheat, but or is that or is that or is that a, a misnomer? Is there are there wheats that can grow any time of the year? Well, you're absolutely right. Most of the wheat varieties are sown in in, in fall, and but there's also spring um, or summer wheat, as we would call it, um, but it's not as common. Um, the, the good thing is that when you um, plant it um, in, in fall, you have the advantages uh, that um, on one hand, um, the the wheat is will still germinate at low temperatures and start growing, while many of the um, well seeds or wild seeds um, weeds um, won't um, during the winter. So um, the the wheat is already a couple of steps um, further in the game than um, than the elements you don't want on your field or in your garden plot. So most of the times it's planted in, in fall. And if people are interested in learning about this effort or the types of wheats and the varieties, is that information available? And is that all on your website? Yes. Um, what we, we try to um, have a strong public outreach pro program with this project. So what we created as um, yeah, sort of a... Um, a Headquarter is actually the the project website here in the field, um, and we then have a project blog which will um, every week tell the story of how in rural Kentucky um, is uh, the weed was um, uh, sowed or the soil prepared. But then at the same time, we look at that um, um, farmer in rural India and to see how he did it uh, or she did it, and um, we also combine this it's not only the growing process we document and um, have blog posts on but also we have guest contributors and we even had a, a great post about gluten intolerance for example or the the importance of wheat for um the the global well-being um uh, of people when it comes to growing food so we try to follow this in a holistic approach and uh, we have the website, the blog, uh, and we also use social media um, in every um, respect. We have an Instagram account, uh, a, a Facebook account, uh, and well, the, the website can also be seen as a database. Um, we have tech words, and you can basically research the website 
to some specific aspect. So you look at that specific plow or um, that specific wheat variety. We will invest a little bit more research and time to get a real database going. So even in 10 years, um, uh, when the project is hopefully still running, um, we will have um, uh, the possibility to look back in, in that first year and see um, what um, different techniques, skills, and, and so on were preserved. And finally, we also plan um, to publish um, this in a, in a book project um, in the next couple of years. And I should have asked, but is this year one, year two? What are we? It's, we're recording this right now in the in February of 2022. When, how far along in the project are you? It's the first cultivation cycle. We started the project last fall. Most of the growers, as we call them, um, planted their wheat in well October. Some of them in November, um, and others don't even started with it. We have a farmer in Colombia. Um, that will, uh, because he's in a really high altitude in the Andean Mountains, um, he can only start growing it in April. Um, um, so he's still waiting. But we're still in that first cultivation cycle. So we'll have to bring you back and see how everything went and uh, and find out uh, how your, your Heidelbergen uh, wheat fared without uh, the snowpack. And if, <laughs> exactly. if you're if you're able to get any bread out of it, which we we hope for your four children that 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 that, for the, <laughs> that, that, that there's there's a lot of hungry mouths to feed there, Klaus. So. Um, yeah, big. So what's next for you? Um, are you've obviously got your work cut out you for you for for this project? Is that really the focus right now? Um, and um, where can people kind of catch up with you and and learn about your travails with this specific project? Is there a way to follow you? Well, if anybody wants to follow what I do, basically with the work in experimental archaeology, we, as the Lowestham Laboratory for Experimental Archaeology also has a website, we even have a YouTube channel, um, where we try to um, tell people uh, about the techniques and ways of early medieval agriculture, but also other fields of house building and uh, indoor climate analysis. Uh, I'm also an active ox driver, um, both professionally and on my private um, farming operation. So this is a field of work where uh, I can be seen. And two, um, when we think about the project itself, um, we're well still in the process uh, of figuring out what field crop we will choose for the next cultivation cycle. So it's open for for discussion. Um, everybody can suggest a field crop. We chose wheat because it was so wide or is so widely spread. And we could include really a lot of people. We have more than 20 growers from four continents um, um, being part of the project now. But that can change or add on when we choose a more specific field crop for next year. So um, for now, we, we just hope that we actually bring home that wheat at the end of the cultivation cycle. That's one immediate goal um, for the for the future. Fantastic. And before we go, we ask this of everyone. It normally makes people kind of squir squirm in their seat. But what's your favorite historic place or site? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, being a, an archaeologist, an historian, it's really tough. Um, but, well, wrapping my head around it, I would have to say that is the, the King's Chapel, um, King's College Chapel at the University of Cambridge. I was able to, in England, uh, I was able to visit that 
um, college chapel um, twice. Um, it, it was built in the 15th century, and uh, it has a really breathtaking Gothic fan vault um, that always makes me stand there in, in pure awe, um, thinking about how um, be somebody being human can um, create something so beautiful. Uh, and yeah, that would be my pick, I guess. I think that's I think that's a good one. I don't think a lot of people would argue with that one. And uh, we'll have to have you back um, maybe in a year or so and see how everything has gone over the past year um, and uh, learn more about this great project. We'll put links to the, your website and the Year on the Field website and Twitter and all that good stuff in the show notes so people can just click on those. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Klaus. It's been really fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.